This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Welcome back to the Paddle and Fin Podcast Network. We're brought to you by Pelican Built Tough. For all situations, go to pelican.com. Yak Gadget. For all your fine kayak fishing accessory needs, go to yakgadget.com. Eastport Marina on the beautiful shores of Dale Hollow Lake. For all your lodging, kayaking, and fishing needs, go to eastport.info. Now let's get this show started. Welcome back, everyone. Another episode of Feather and Fur. And tonight we have Michael Shippa on. Welcome to the show, Michael, or Mike. Which, I'm not sure what you prefer. Whatever you want to call me, I'll respond to. <laughs> there we go. We'll keep it. We'll keep it real nice and easy. Welcome to the show. Thanks for letting me out, be on here. Yeah, I'm excited for tonight. I'm excited that we're going to talk about something I I'm a big advocate for, but I don't know a lot about the actual. I'm excited to talk about hunt tests. Is what it is. I'm not real familiar. I've never been to one. I've worked with clubs before, but I'm excited to talk about that, trying to take that little mystique away from me and I'm sure from other trainers as well who have been told you should join NABDA or an HRC. We weren't, we're not going to focus on retrievers. We're going to focus on pointers, but you've been told to join an organization and that like the testing kind of scares you or, or that. So I'm excited to talk about that. But first, I'd like to get to know a little bit about you. How'd you get into hunting? Was it a family tradition? Was it, did you take it up on your own? Well, I more or less grew up on a small farm in michigan so you know how that is you got 500 acres in this side 500 net and so you grab the old single shot 16 and start sneaking out when you're eight years old there you go and uh, i had a trap line running up and down the creek trapping muskrats so the pheasants and the ducks were always in fear <laughs> perfect so you had you had good wild pheasants then yes southern michigan um it was uh lots of birds i mean you know it's before the agriculture changed and how the how the stuff was harvested um, I mainly hunted in the mid you know, seventies through the early eighties and, uh, on the property around my parents there, it was, it was no big deal. I mean, you go out and get your limit every day. Sure. And I've heard, we had all kinds of crooks and stuff and it was, you know, 
when they came in, they were there. Right. And, and I've heard that before too. Um, I've worked with, I've talked to other people on from Michigan who have talked about like the agriculture back practices and how they harvest corn now. And you know, I'm longer going to have those ditch rows and that, that it really took a hard, that the pheasant population took a hard hit out there. And I was, and I know it happened in Wisconsin as well, but I took up hunting at a later, later age. So I never experienced that. Like I never experienced those golden days. Yep. Um, we, we lost our quail population about 79. We had an ice storm come in because we had, you know, decent quail and decent pheasant. And an ice storm came in about 79, 78. And uh, that was the end of our quail hunting in the area too. Ouch. Yeah. So it was, yeah. And it's never come back and I, it, it's never will. I mean, I still have wild pheasants around me. Okay. I can go out, yeah. I can go out and get a few every year. You know, I, I shoot two or three roosters. I see how many roosters the hens there are for the winter. And I try to balance it up a little bit. I get that completely. Um, I'm from Southern Wisconsin and there's a couple of spots where I'll hunt down here where you'll hear grouse drumming. And I know people have flushed them. I've never flushed one this far South, but even if I did, just cause there's they're just such a rare bird down here. There's, I just watch it. Oh, I'm just telling my dog, she's a good girl and let that one fly. Like I wouldn't chase it at all just because of that reason. Yeah. We actually had grouse down here too. And through the seventies, um, I had a few Aspen patches in my area that uh, you go and shoot a few grouse and the aspen patch has disappeared and the grouse population is north now you know midland area north is sure. about where you start getting into the grouse now in michigan makes sense kind of that same level in wisconsin too you get to the mid state and you start to get into more birds and you get to the north woods where you really can find a decent numbers yep woodcock during the migration we got a few local woodcock and i run the dogs and i normally don't shoot any woodcock down here all right it's, it's good to have the dogs for something different to you know to work on I'm really, sure. I'm extremely lucky. I live a, uh, a mile from 1200 acre, uh, you know, state run training facility for dogs, a dog training area. Oh, so nice. I can walk out my door and walk and, you know, work dogs, you know, any day I want to. So it's, I'm very lucky. Most people don't have that opportunity. No, the closest I have, my, the closest dog training area, I believe it's gotta be at least 35 or 40 minutes away. If I want to get out and, just, and actually run the dogs, Otherwise, I'm lucky. Whereas I have a little, I have a 40 acre parcel, and then my wife's uncle has about 250 acres, mixed mainly woods. I mean, it's mainly it's not egg property. It's wooded. It's deer hunting land. But I can get out and run the dogs in there as well. Run the dog in there as well, which is nice. Yeah, I get to guide at a couple uh, pheasant preserves, uh, Muzzy, which is north of me by Flint, and then Bear Creek, which is south by Adrian, just out of the Ohio border. So, you know, I still get to see lots of birds every year. I mean, my dogs probably have a couple thousand birds shot over them. So very you don't nice. get that opportunity very often. So, No, and, and birds make a bird dog. I'm a firm believer in that. Oh, yeah. The more birds they see. And, you know, when you're hunting cleanup birds on the preserves, you know, after a couple of weeks, it's as good as some of the wild birds you're going to find around. So sure. the young puppies, it teaches a lot to them. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I... I know some people look down on preserve hunts and stuff like that, but I just feel like it's, I love doing it. If you get that cooler weather before the season starts and you can get your dog on some planted birds, just to brush them up. If you haven't been chasing hard in the winter throughout the summer, I also use it for taking new shooters with too, because it's so you can keep it so much more controlled than you could taking them out in the grouse woods or woodcock. I mean, that's hectic. It's fast paced. Whereas on those preserve hunts, you're in that open field and, the planted birds seem to hold pretty well most times. I have been on some hunts where they are actually runners at like almost as running almost as much as a wild okay. bird, which has surprised me. Um, especially if those preserves have some corn, because they'll hit that corn and they'll run still. 
course they will. And it's also important too, when you're taking out new hunters to have, you know, I use broke dogs, you know, they're steady the shot and fall. Sure. I get in there, you know, I control the situation. I let the new people get in and, and flush and it just keeps everything safe. Okay. And uh, it's, it's very important. And the, the state of Michigan started a program a couple of years ago where they're, they're releasing pheasants on certain areas. So I've used them to take, you know, new shooters, women that have never hunted before uh, out to those spots. And uh, it gives them the feel of being actual wild bird hunting where, you know, I, I can, you know, with my dog, I can guarantee we're going to find some bird for them. So it's sure, nice. sure. Agreed. I like using situations like that for new hunters or I wouldn't say inexperienced dogs, but dogs you want to get more birds underneath. Um, I wouldn't use an inexperienced dog like you said around new hunters. That's just ask, that's just a recipe for disaster, I think. Oh yeah, I mean we there was one of the preserves had a dog shot a couple of years ago, and you know it was the same thing. A young person excited, um, the dog wasn't hurt, just took a couple pellets. But you just you just got to be careful, you know. And that's right. the thing. I do I for the state of Michigan and pheasants forever. I'll do the women in the wild hunts. I guide for a lot, most of them, and I do the veterans hunts and um you know and a lot of the youth hunts so it's just it, you just learn you know look at the person you can figure out what their skill set is and then you you tailor the situation to that exactly and i've done quite a few veteran hunts before i actually enjoy doing that quite a bit um and it's just great to get new hunters out and let them experience what we have so much passion for and it, but safety is just that number one priority with all those newer hunters to make sure that they don't shoot at low flying birds. They, I mean, it's just even in a controlled settings like that, it still gets exciting. It still gets, it still has a lot going on. Yeah, and that's like I say, it's very important that you have a broke dog for that. I and agree. Just make the situation so much safer, and um, you know, and that, and that really impresses the people too to see a dog like that that's well behaved, and it makes them want to get a puppy and progress into it and it's 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 you know it, it, it can't get any better for new people than to see that agreed 100 uh, for me i wouldn't chase birds if i didn't have a dog like it's the dog work for me i mean watching my dog work the grouse woods or a pheasant field is really what drives me to going back out there that's the experience i enjoy i can't see doing it again without a dog i i just can't do it i just couldn't see myself no, it's not. I mean, it's all about the dog work. I take a, a lot of new hunters out grouse hunting, and they normally set the rules for me that I can't shoot anything till 4 p.m. <laughs> so, you know, a box or two of ammo is gone, and then I get to shoot a bird or two, and, and then we take the pictures. So, <laughs> wow, that goes. That's funny. That's awesome, though. I mean, and that's not like that's like that's one thing to keep in mind. Like, that's another reason why I wouldn't want to use more of an inexperienced dog, too, thinking about it. I mean, you have new hunters, even if they're not new hunters, say they're just new grouse hunters, that's a completely unique shooting experience unto itself. And there's a lot of missing inherent, even if you're experienced with it. And if you're not experienced in that, unless you get lucky, you're going to probably miss 95% of your shots. Oh, easy. And, I mean, I've had people go out there and shoot a box of ammo and, you know, and then you sneak them in to find a few woodcock and they, they get a few birds and then they feel good. So it's right. We get our, when I, we get our wood got my migration here in Michigan um, for the new hunters or the new shooters, that's the best thing to do. Agreed. And they hold so tight and they don't fly. I mean, they kind of, I always kind of picture like they fly like a helicopter more because they come straight up before they go out. At least that's what I've always tended to notice. Whereas the grouse just take off like super low, fast through the trees. Whereas it seems like those woodcock like to jump before they fly and it gives a good opportunity for them to see the bird and actually get a sight picture of it. 
Yeah, most people with woodcock shoot too fast. You know, they're, they're shooting the grouse. You know, you can kind of pick a spot where they're going to and, you know, aim your spot and that's it. And uh, once you learn that to slow down a little bit, you're uh, you're ready to go. And, you know, hunt, even hunting grouse with a pointing dog, if you got a good pointing dog, the birds are pinned, you know, everybody's still got a good chance to walk in and actually see a bird and get some shooting at it. You know, it's, Agreed. when you got the dogs who are a little on the wild, they're used to chasing pheasants and they want to creep and get up close and take a look. Well, that sends Mr. Grouse, you know, to the next county. So it's amazing how much different grouse are than other birds that I've chased. And it really, and it really does take a special dog, in my opinion, to be good on grouse. Cause like you, they, they don't take pressure well, but if they don't put enough pressure on them, they will run. So it's that weird balancing act, but I've seen great dogs and, I, I'll be the first to admit, Pippa, she'll have days where she handles them great and other days where she's just a complete airhead and bumping birds left and right. Yeah, I, I hear people, you know, I talk on the, on the page all the time and I, say, I keep my dogs, you know, 50, 60 yards in the grouse woods all the time. I don't. My dogs will run 100, 150, 200 yards, but, you know, they stop and scent. And sure. that, makes, that makes it so much... And, and to be honest with you, when grouse season starts, it takes my dogs three or four days to figure out the routine. And once they figure it out, you know, the older dogs, then you then you can start shooting birds. But it, it's just, you know, I'm, I'm used to seeing the old setter and the pointer crowd, and I don't like to have my dogs showed up, or I don't like to be shown up. So sure. I've dogs that are compete with them people. You know, I'm, I'm, you know, there's no way in the world I'm letting a German short hair outdo me. <laughs> I love so, it. That's awesome. I love it. And I completely get it. Um, I'll be the, like, Pip is not a prime example for a Griff. Um, as we, as we mentioned before, and another, my listeners know that I rescued her later on and she had very little experience when I've got her. So I'm very happy with, with where she is in the amount of time she's had for at taking her at an older age and getting her in those woods as much as I could. But I wouldn't say she's a prime example of like a finished hunting dog by any means. She isn't. And I'm the first to admit that. So if people get the chance to hunt over a finished or a broke dog, it's a completely different experience. And it's just amazing what they can do. Yeah. And I'd like to thank you for taking, you know, rescuing a dog. I try to take in two or three a year and rehome them. And then, like I told you earlier today, uh, Kenneth McKean has rescued three Griffons. And uh, he is, he's been the best. I mean, his dogs have come out, you know, perfect. So it's, it's possible, you know. It and, is possible. Just keep working with it and the dog will come around. I mean, they've got the ability, they got the skills. You just got to reach the right buttons on them to get to where you're going. I agree. And I, I've switched over to doing the Gibbons West method of training, and it's a more silent, less, you know, let the dog figure the situation out. And the Griffons adapt to that extremely well. I mean, it's 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 a big change. And the new people coming in that want a trainers, you know, they got their first dog. It's not such a obedience method. You know, you kind of let the, the birds train the dog and sure. they, they like it too. You know, we just had a clinic up here with Dave Jonesy who put on uh, uh, for Michigan and I had 30 people sign up for the, cl for the clinic. It was at Muzzy Pheasant Farm and uh, who, I mean, it was done in two days. So there's a, there, you know, people want to learn a, a nice, easy method, a thinking method, let the dog figure out. And, and it's worked out really well with my dogs. I haven't experienced, I haven't done any training using that method. I've read some books about the West method and I really do like a lot of things about it over some of the older traditional methods. I mean, a lot of things just seem to make sense. They really do. 
that more let the birds teach the dogs, more positive reinforcements, things along those lines, making it a good experience rather than not necessarily a negative one, but not necessarily a positive one either. Well, like I said, the dogs learn from mistakes, and so do you. Right. So this right. method allows you to make the mistakes, and you can, you know, a two-day clinic like that, you can see the young dogs learn and progress with just a few, you know, 20 minutes being handled. And um, and the people are more relaxed. It's not like you're uptight. You're, you know, you got to do this. You have to sit. You have to stay. You have to, you know, whoa, 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 whoa. You know, <laughs> I feel tired when I'm in the woods and with new people, and all I hear is whoa for the next 20 minutes. It just drives me nuts. <laughs> And, you know, the dog, the dog doesn't know whoa, and neither does the person. Right, right. Like, that's a, that's not a natural command. Let's, I mean, pointing's natural, right? But, I mean, whoa is like, it's it's a taught command. You can't just tell a dog whoa. It's like any command. You can't just tell a dog sit and it's going to know it needs to sit. Yeah. I I What I do with, with I, you know, teach the dogs with a pinch collar and a, and a, a you know, lead line, long lead line. And once I'm done and they understand that I overlay the e-collar sure. um, through the process. And then at the end, I use the word, whoa, you sure. know, when I want a command to stop. So I overlay it at the end. Some people don't even bother overlaying it, but I like to have that in my toolbox if I need it in the field. And, that makes sense. You know, and I tell people, I go, well, if my dog's running for the road and I, you know, I want to yell something for it to stop. Well, here is just as good as whoa, as far as I'm concerned. Agreed. You know, what's the difference? So it's just, it's just all in what you want to do in the method. But like I said, I overlay woe at the end when I'm done with the dogs. And uh, once they understand what's going on and they like to do it. And like my, my puppies, I, I do stop the flush first. I don't even let them get into chasing birds. I don't have to put chase in the dogs that I keep, you know? Sure. And if I see dogs that do need that, the people that I'm working with, of course we do that. But I, I, I do stop the flush first. And then, right. um, and then when that's done, the dogs are, you know, a bird flies, they bump a bird, young puppy, they stop and stand to look to start off. And it's a, it's a big issue, you know, where you, you take the chase out of the dog. A lot of these dogs, you know, your short hairs, your DKs, your DDs, you know, they want to chase and they want to go at it. And, um, and, and my, the dogs that I keep on the Griffons are, you know, they're on the upper edge of the, of the want to go routine. Sure. Well, sure. that's what I do. But when I got people coming in, like I said, I'll, you know, we, we chase a lot of birds with their dogs because th that's what they need. Right. And if so, your dog has enough drive where you don't need to chase the birds, if you can stop them on the flush like you did, all you're you're just building good behavior right at the beginning is what you're doing. You're just and the dog good wants behavior. to comply. And that's right. the main thing is that you don't have to give it to command. It wants to comply. When I do a natural ability test for my puppies, I don't even shoot a bird over them. Not one right. bird. There's no reason to. There's you don't you know nothing in the test is about shooting and killing birds. You know it's about so, covering the field, pointing. So let's let's talk about that because I don't know like natural ability. That's the first test. Most pointing like if you're working with NAPTA, correct? That's the correct. first test of this series. That's what up to 16 months. That's you know that's the age drop off for dogs. Okay, let's if you don't mind, let's talk a little bit about it. Like what so the natural ability test? What is, what is actually what what are the dogs being judged on and what are you shooting? like not shooting for, but what are you aiming for, for, and you're like, let's say you're training and I know it's natural ability, but what are you aiming for to complete that test successfully? Let's say. It's supposed to be a test about the natural ability of the dog. Okay. So it's supposed to be minimal training. Nowadays, that's not the way it is. Okay. You know, people come in, they, 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 to get breeding rights in some of their dogs, they have to have an NA prize. Got it. So, 
so the trainers have become very adept. There's very few dogs who go to a trainer are, are going to fail an NA test just because yeah. they know the pitfalls. The main thing that you'll see with it is in a tracking, which the dog is supposed to track a pheasant that's hazed and chased. That's where you see most of the, of the, of, of the problems with the dogs. And, um, you know, you can have good days, you can have bad days, a dry day, and it's just not a good tracking day. Sure. Um, most of the pointing stuff and everything else, you know, the, the dog's got to work roughly, say, 20 minutes in the field. They want to see a couple points. They want it to be staunch. And okay. uh, five or six seconds, you know, you just talk to the judge, ask him, you know, are, are you, are you, are, you know, are you happy with what you see or whatever? If they see dogs that don't, are not showing a lot of drive, don't want to get out, they want to see chase. Okay. And because um, they want to see the dogs like it up. I always ask the judges, you know, hey, do you want to see some chase or don't you? You know, my dogs are going to be pretty steady to, to the flush. If, if, you, if you don't want to see chase, well, then we're just going to stand here and look pretty. Sure. And, um, you know, that's the main thing with that. And then the water portion of the test for, for puppies, they want to see them swim. Okay. So all you've got to do is enter the water, throw a bumper, and then have the dog swim. Got for it. some reason, I mean, it's it's easy. I can get any puppy in the world to, uh, well, hello there, Mr. Finn. I'm at my sister's house, so Mr. Finn had to come in and take a visit. <laughs> That's all right. So, I figured uh, it was a dog because I didn't see, either it was a dog or a ghost because all I saw was the door open. Oh, you didn't see the tail come in? I got the long, long dock <laughs> on my tail, so it come in. Um, in the water portion of the NA test, you'll see a lot of dogs that, that fail. And I don't understand that because it's, it's pretty easy. I mean, I can take, I've got people in that come, come and talk to me and uh, like, it's like, I can't, can't get my dog to swim. Well, we Cheeto them out into the water, you know, throw some popcorn and start dragging them out. It's a pretty simple process. Sure. And um, that's the, like I say, the track and, and the water issue with, with the NA dogs is the main thing. And you'll see dogs that come into any test that, you know, they could be, they could already be doing the, some of the more advanced tests, just the amount of training that goes on. And um, anybody who wants to do the test, it's most of the people are friendly. NAVDA is a real inclusive group, especially my, I, I train with Southeast Michigan, uh, NAVDA, and we have 160 members. That's a big group. That's, That's a, a huge, big. it's a huge group. And um, everybody gets along. The more experienced handlers, most of them don't train their dogs during their training days. Um, they show up, they'll only help the younger people or the or the new 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 people get involved. And um, you know, there's a lot of old school guys that have been doing this for 50 years, and you got people that have been there for a couple of years. Sure. So it's a real inclusive group. Um, I, I go out, you know, I have people that are having issues, and they'll call me and I say, you know, I'll go out in the weeknights and give them a hand. And, um, it's, it's, you know, any issues that most dogs have, you can work through in a couple of days, you know, a couple of days. Last year, I had a call from a, a young lady who had her first Griffin and it's four days before the test. And she says, my dog won't point. It wants to rip everything. Well, you know, what, what can I do? So you just teach them a few trips, tricks on how to get stuff, you know, go crosswind. Don't lead your dog into the wind. I had her crying on Wednesday night because she was ruining her dog and, you know, oh, I can't handle this. And I go, listen, hon, just settle down. Everything will be fine. And she gets a four on, on her test day on Friday. And uh, that's, you know, that just makes me feel good to see that. So, so for me as well as anyone else. So is, what's the scoring? Is it one through five? Scoring system is a four, a one to four. Okay. Okay. And it's approximately 78% of what the dog is required to do will get you a four. Okay. 
and then it goes down three, two, and one, according to the percentages of the test. And um, there's multipliers in different categories between, you know, a trained and a natural ability. So they use a multiplier to go through. So, so a top score, or the, I should say a, a, the highest score possible for an NA dog is a 112. Okay. And um, each category, you're going to have to have a certain, like a four, three, or two in order to get a prize. So okay. a prize for there's going to be a few categories which are not natural ability that you can get threes in and still get a prize one dog. But on, on the um, natural ability test if you, uh, for the dogs, if you go from a four to a three, you're going to get a prize two. Okay. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's a real simple system. Um, I have, you know, I, I've had people show up that I've seen there that my dog took first place. Well, and then you got to explain to them that, you know, they've never done this before. No, it's a prize one. It's not a first place. And, uh, <laughs> it, you know. And it's a it's a good system, um, like any training, you know, any any testing system. There's a few holes in it, sure. Um, that you know, but uh, all, all in all, it works well. Um, I I tend to use the um, VHDF. They use a one to ten system for my breeding dogs, and then um, or I or I just use straight utility dogs. I don't really judge NA dogs too much for what I'm going to use for breeding. Okay. I used to, but I'm just switching over. I want to have a more advanced dogs. So I've always bred utility dogs to NA dogs has been my requirements. So I'm going to start trying to do two utility dogs only. So what is a utility? So nat, so an NA dog prize one means they did their natural ability test. Is a utility dog, is that the next level? A utility dog will be a fully trained functional dog. Okay. Okay. The only thing that they don't do in the utility dog is brace work. So the dog, it'd be a single dog trained. It's not necessarily in brace work with other dogs. I, I like to run my dogs in braces to start off because that's the way I'm going to hunt them. So all my dogs are trained in braces, which AKC for their hunt test, everything is done in braces. Okay. But a utility dog is a dog that'll do um, marks, search in the water. Um, it's steady to wing shot and fall, you know, for a prize one dog. Um, they'll do a 150 yard drag on a duck you know, 100 to 150 yard drag on a duck. It's a fully functional, it's a broke dog. If you get a utility dog, it's a prize one, two or three, you've got a special dog. Got it. I mean, even a prize three dog is way above any of the typical hunting dogs you're going to see. Got I mean, it. You're in the top 5% echelon of the dogs in, you know, All right. in the United States. And then after that, if you get a prize one dog, you can get invited to the Invitational. And I've never ran dogs in the Invitational um it's just something that i you know it, it's in the it's in the hunting season and you know i i it's 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 a cherry on top of the of the sunday and i've never chased that cherry yet i will just because i'm, <laughs> I'm retired now i'm going to have the time to do it but those dogs are, are are random braces you know it's a test that's designed to break the dog down you know it, it's it and it's a fully full complete dog i mean it's a dog that passes or goes to the Invitational is a top 1% dog in the United States. Got it. Well, for that, so for that master test, is that also done through NAVDA or is that through a, through a completely different organization? OKC, Master Hunter, is that what you're talking about? Okay, yep. Yeah, so AKC that's, that's Master that's Hunter. Okay. That dog would be run and braces, which is two dogs at a time. And it would be, when you know, a steady wing shot and fall and do a retrieve. The only difference is there's no tracking work or water work for that requirement. Okay. So, so our dogs are versatile dogs, so they should do anything and everything. Right. I mean, um, from a blood track, they're more than capable of doing that. 
you know, to doing waterfall retrieving work. I, I hunt Saginaw Bay here in Michigan with my dogs. And, um, you know, that's just like hunting, as far as I'm concerned, the ocean at times. I mean, you're, you know, we got four and sure. six footers. Not that I'm going out in my boat and four and six footers, but, you know, it, it's, it's, you know, it takes a good dog to work the Great Lakes, the, the, the Bay Area, the Great Lakes. Okay. And um, a utility on, dog is more than capable of doing that. I mean, my grip, my grip, she retrieves ducks without a problem. Um, it's it, They're a great versatile dog. I think I'm a big fan of a versatile dog. So I don't hunt just grouse, right? You, you, you yeah. have a dog, to, like you have a dog, like if you have other, if you're just a grouse hunter, I get it. Maybe not wanting to do the versatile work if you are that single focused. But for the people that hunt multiple things, I mean, a versatile dog is just an amazing thing to have. You know, and I, I just, I mean, I like, I like fur sharpness in my dogs too. So, okay. you know, I just love it when I'm out in the woods or at the farm or where I'm at, you know, I got a raccoon coming in, he's tearing stuff up. You know, the, the dogs are more than capable of taking care of the situation. I was sure. doing a breeding with a, with a, with a friend of mine, Bill Petty's dog a, a couple years ago. And we're, we're walking out, I'm on heel with the dog and a, a weasel runs out of my pigeon pen after killing 10 of my pigeons. So I'm a pretty upset person. <laughs> And I look at Bill's dog and I say, fetch. And it was over. <laughs> it's not even my dog. It doesn't get any better than that. So <laughs> That's awesome. No more pigeon That's... killers for me. <laughs> I have to ask because I've noticed this in my griff and another griff I hunted with. Do yours seem to be rabbit crazy over bird crazy? Like if they'll cut a rabbit track when they're hunting birds, will they get like flip modes to rabbit for a little bit? Like, do you have that as well? Or is that just a lack of training on my part? They handle the rabbits totally different, my dogs do, than uh, pheasants. I don't normally shoot rabbits over my dogs because I got people I'm guiding, you know, in the hunt clubs and stuff. Right. And uh, I don't let anybody shoot anything on the ground. But uh, their, their point's a little more intense. They have a tendency to try to get ahead and cut them off if you let them, you know, trust and chase. So the dogs know the difference. They know the difference between the first scent, you know, oh, and, sure. then, and then the, and, the, and a bird scent. So they handle it different. Yes, they do. I mean, and then uh, I'll get, uh, I, you know, giving tongue is what they call it when they're, when they're baying or chasing the rabbit or anything. And some of my dogs, you know, they're, they're a barking monster. They sound like a little small beagle if they're chasing after a rabbit or a raccoon or something. So Mine doesn't bark. She doesn't do that. But if she cuts a fresh rabbit track and she starts, and she starts trying to track that rabbit, it's like 10 times more intensity than she has on grouse and woodcock. It's crazy. Like she would much, she would much rather chase rabbits all day long than birds for sure. Yep. And on the utility test for NAVDA, they do a duck drag where they'll drag a duck out in between, you know, hundred, 125, 150 yards at times. It just depends on your property. And uh, people are having a hard time with that. You can also drag fur. And I tell people, I said, well, let's switch over and do a rabbit and get this intensity and you can just see the intensity change differently in the dog sure I mean, it's just a whole different attitude so that's another way to help you with the test get through you know if you got a few dogs that you know i i it amazed me at times that i see dogs that really don't like ducks and you wouldn't you know you wouldn't think that's possible but you see a few and sure. uh, if you use fur for the drag or for the test or whatever it totally changes the disposition of the dog my friend, you Julie Griswold. Like, is it? Can you request that? Like, if you'd rather yeah. drag fur, is that something you can just ask the judge and say, "I'd rather drag fur for the for the trap." Yep, you just bring your own rabbit or whatever you okay. want fur, and uh, just give it to the judge and drag it. My my friend Julie Griswold is the president of the DK Club, which is the Deutsch Kurzhaar Club in Michigan. 
And she, the, you know, the German testing system used a lot of fur. So she was the one that taught me that little trick to, uh, you know, up the, up the ante with a few different dogs. I can just from my experience and I have very little with Griff, so you have far more, but just with her and other versatile dogs, like there's a much bigger drive that I've seen for fur. So I can see that being a phenomenal little trick for those. If they're struggling with that track part. Yeah. And I like for the pheasant, uh, track for the NA dogs. I don't use a pheasant until a, a couple tracks before the test. I use ducks on the ground. Okay. I'll let my dogs do the, you know, do the tracking or my puppies practice with that. And then, uh, so that becomes the kill the duck and we still have the point to pheasant when we finally do the track on it. And that's another little trick that's, that works out really well. And then when you go to the next test with utility tests, when you're doing the duck search stuff, the dogs are already introduced to ducks on the ground. They don't like them. It's a different scenario and they, you know, it helps with the water work a lot. Sure. Sure. And are you going to know, like when you would join, like I worked, like I went to two different NAVDA sessions with my local chapter and met a few people, all great people, but I never ended up joining them for a training day. It just didn't seem like it would fit right with my dog because I had some behavioral issues to work out and I didn't want her to be around younger dogs and have younger dogs to have a bad experience because she's aggressive. Like I didn't want anything like that to happen. Um, not so much. I was, I was more worried about having a those younger dogs having a negative experience than my dog. Do you know what I mean? Like right. I didn't want a puppy that was there to have a terrible experience with an older dog. And I just created a dog that's now aggressive towards other dogs because of this experience. And now that trainer has got to try to work through a whole set of behavioral issues that I caused. So I shied away, but will you see like, well, like the clubs, like help you walk you through these tips, like on the training, like training with ducks to start. So that way there, they get that drive right away and stuff like that. Is that pretty common knowledge or is these, are these little inside tricks people should be writing down? Well, the Southeast Michigan NAVDA has got a pretty inclusive group. Okay. And, you know, there's, there's, you know, when, when the new people come in, almost everybody helps them out, gives them work. You know, you get a few people are standoffish and, you know, they, I can only think of one or two people that didn't stick around for the tests or whatever. And uh, you're in Wisconsin, right? Yeah. So are you in a Southern area or the Southwest, South, Southwest. I think it's, what is, it, is it called the bong there is where they do the NAVDA testing in Wisconsin? That's, that's Southeast, but yes, okay. there's Richard Bong. Yep. yep. Okay. So my buddy, Kenneth McKean trains there. And like I told you before, he's rescued dogs. If yep. you want to go down there and work with Kenneth, Kenneth would be more than happy to help you through with it and, sure. and work you through the issues with the dog. I mean, he is really good at it. And he does Gibbons West method to a training. All right. And, um, there, there's a way for you. But yeah, the groups, you know, all the dog groups, the people I'm are, are, are all real nice people. And sure. uh, all you got to ask and you're going to get included into it. So very nice. And when I was, when I had my lab and I worked with different HRCs, I always felt the same way. You get the one or two people that you can kind of tell they're not, they're not the first guy you're going to buddy up with. Right. But there's yeah. always been people there that have been super inclusive and I met great friends through it that I'm still friends with today that I hunt with and we still talk all the time, even though I haven't trained with them in years. And that's the same thing. Like I say, you form, I mean, you'll see little groups. Everybody gets together, the new people. Um, we put on a sporting clay shoot now with uh, Southeast Michigan NAB to kind of get people together. Sure. And uh, I'm going to get on them. We've been trying to, uh, to put on a few uh, uh, youth hunts and get that going. And then uh, we do a quail shoot every year when we put the money goes into the field trail grounds. Um, 
I mean, it's, 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 that's, you know, dog groups are, are good. You know, you get in there and you become a family. So, and that's what you're looking for. Right. And as long as and, you get the information to, to help you through, you're good to go. And someone, and odds are in those groups, someone's going to have seen what you, what you're working through and be able to, and has worked through it prior to you and can help you get through it. Mm -hmm. The only, like I say, sometimes the, the only issue that I see that everybody's got a different method. Sure. So you'll get five different people, you know, they're all trying to help out and they got a different way of, of, uh, of fixing the issue. So my suggestion is when you get in there, pick a method and stick with it. Sure. That's that what sense. you're comfortable doing with. Just do it that way. And, uh, and uh, you'll, you'll do much better instead of trying this way, this way one week and doing something different the next week, just pick a method and go. That makes sense. Consistency is key. I mean, that, I mean, I noticed that right away. That's a big difference from my lab to my Griff is she's very smart and you need a good consistency with, with her. I mean, it, that's one, like, at least with her, I've noticed you need to be consistent. Like you can't be overly aggressive. I wouldn't say she's, she's not a soft dog, but at times I almost feel like she trains like a soft dog, but I think it's just because of her intelligence. You know, and this is a, is a general characterization, obviously, but right, right. I find with the dogs five or six times is about all you want to do repetition in a row. So you do that. They're not like a lab where you can do 42 times in a row of you know, right. run to the pile and pick it up and come back. So I tell people just do it four or five times with a Griffon and then move to something else. And they're always trying to work around the method because they're smarter than you and they think they're smarter than you. And that's where the issue comes where people don't like to work with a dog that wants to play the edges of the, of the obedience game. Sure. And so uh, the dogs that you, you know, massage around that area and, and uh, you know, give a little here and take, you know, any other areas seem to do a lot better. And that, that's a, that's a really good way to put it. And that's what I've experienced as well. Cause I wouldn't say she gets, I wouldn't say she gets bored, but she gets just done with it. She wants to move on to the next task. Like, like you said, you do it five, six times and it's like, all right, let's do something else. Like it's, I feel like it's no longer, no long, even if she doesn't have it figured out, it's no longer mentally stimulating and any more we would push it. It's just going to set us back rather than make, that make forward progress. Yeah. I got a friend of mine who's, she's uh, Tina. She's doing uh, bucket girls with her dog now because she wants to do more retrieving work. So, uh, I, and I told her, I said, just, you know, start off at 60 yards pick, you know, five or six times and then go do something else and then come back. And the dog's adjusting to it really well. And, you know, he likes it. It's something new to do. You know, it's a new game to play. And then uh, you go, you know, you, and then you go out in the field and do your field work and then come back and, uh, and do the bucket drills again. And, and the dog is, and that, that's been my experience with, with, with my griffs. You know, I've had them, I've had them for 30 years now, roughly. The first one I hunted over was in 1975 in, in Ontario. So I've been familiar with the breed for a long time and I've been through labs. I've been through some short hairs, some Britneys. And then uh, I came, I came back to that, that Griffin that i saw up in Ontario that, you know, the guy used to track wounded bear. We could deer hunt over the dog. We use it for waterfall retrieving. We go out and shoot some grouse. And uh, um, I've had them ever since then. I mean, it's just, it's filled the hole. It does everything I need to do. There's certain characteristics of the dogs that I have that have changed. I mean, I like a little more athletic dogs, so I'm, I've got smaller dogs now. Okay. Know, my males will be 55 to 60 pound dogs, and my females are 40 to 50. Okay, but I that's, put them on, the size of, that's yeah. the size of mine. My, my Griff, she's 
in during hunting season when it's hard to quit like when it's hard to keep waiting on a dog like when they're running hard like she's 45 for like and like this time of year where we're not working as hard she's right around 50. yeah my females are you know 40 to 50 pounds and i've, I've tightened the coat up now i you know i got harsh coated tight dogs you know they're still within breed standard but they're not the fluffy pomeranian muskoxes that you see some of the dogs i and will next when i get my next griff because i am sold on the breed i will be staying with a griff my she's got that more show coat and it's a lot harder to maintain and getting the burrs out after a hunt is definitely more of a, a chore than anything else yep and then i changed the gate a little bit in my my original dogs too i atarna was uh probably one of the best dogs that i, I mean I'm, I'm always thinking that i can have the you know the next dog is going to be better than one i had before but uh, she's a pretty. She would be a pretty tough, tough dog to uh, to replace for most people, or, or or get a better dog. So when George um, decided to do the hunting griff page, um, he called me up and he says, "I'm looking for you know videos and film of, of of dogs in Potarna." And George's dogs were the ones who started the hunting griff page. All right. And uh, she's hunted. I mean, I hunt that dog all across the country. Um, she, you know, and and there's, it would be a tough dog to to beat. I didn't like her gait. Okay. She had that choppy gait and she burned out too quick. So when I when I went to breed her, I found a male who had a longer, better gait, and that's the dog I used. And I changed the gait in my dogs, and that made a big difference. Interesting. You know, I, and I could drop them on the ground now, and you're not going to run them into the ground. You're not going to tire them out. Sure. And, well, that, that's something for you to look at when you're getting your next puppy. That makes sense. And I, I don't know if I would have thought of looking at the gate, to be honest. I, there's a lot of things I've thought, like there, I have a list of things, like features, like not features, but characteristics that I like. I want to see, like a tighter coat, drives, things like that. But I never would have thought to actually look at the gate. And, and another tip, tight feet. Okay. The dog who's got really nice, tight feet is normally going to have a pretty decent gate. All and right. Friends of mine out west, and he and uh, um, he won't breed a dog unless it's got super tight feet. So when you get to breeders who are picky like that, that's where you're going to get the quality dogs. And sure. You can look at a lot of dogs, and you know you you, you see all the time. Well, my dog's breaking its toe. My dog broke its toe. You know, it broke down with us. Well, that's from the, that's from the feet not being tight. And you get into situations, and uh, that's just stuff to look for. That when you're looking for, to to put together the ultimate dog. You know, if you're going to go to a hunt club and hunt two hours a day, well, it doesn't matter. But if your dog's going to be in the ground four months out of the year, you know, right. a dog like that with with a, with a good gait and tight feet doesn't break down. Sure. And a smaller, more athletic dog doesn't break down like an older dog. I, I've been able to hunt my dogs to 13, 14, 15 years old. And, uh, you know, there's I've never seen a lab make it past 10. Mine hunted... Mine passed away suddenly in the summer at 12 years old, and he was still hunting at 11, but they were the easy hunts at that point. He was still yeah. hunting, but, I mean, he wasn't going out and putting miles and miles on like he used to when he was younger. I mean, his hips were getting to him, but at 11, he could still hunt. But at 12, I don't know if he would have. Like I've got a dog at the house now, Dixie, who's 12 years old, and she's starting to lose her hearing and stuff. She can still run all day long, and it's all about gait. Sure. And uh, it's just, you know, it, 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 
I don't want a dog to break down at 10 years old. I'm, you know, I put a lot of work into them five, you know, I don't consider a dog finished till her four or five years old anyway. Right. And then to have a dog that I, you know, is, is got hip issues or elbow issues at nine or 10, I just, you know, and, and it's, it's just a joy for me to see dogs that can still do it at 14, 15 years old, you know, run with the pups and not miss a lick. That That's incredible. And the dog, I mean, and it's sad too, because like my lab at 11, like mentally he was still there, but as his body was starting to fail him, it's like the drive is there and he would see like, there'd be days where I wouldn't take him and I'd take Pip, my Griff instead. And like, he, you could just see that in his eyes, like break his spirit. Yep. And, it, and I got, I'm not laughing about it, but I mean, it's like, so it makes sense. Like you're focused on the gate, the size, so you can hunt them later in their life because mentally they're still there. It's their, like they have to have the physical capabilities though too. Yep. And then the guys out West on the big open prairies um, with, with Griff's anyway, their dogs tend to be a little bigger, taller, stronger dogs. And I can fully understand that because it's the same thing. You know, they're covering 30, 40 miles, of, you know, a day sometimes on the gps when you're running them sure well your certain areas you're going to see like where i'm at in michigan that's a perfect size for the dogs i mean if i go out west for two weeks and hunt they don't miss a lick you know every dog's waiting to go so uh you know every area is going to have and what kind of hunting you're doing is as far as i'm concerned is going to dictate you know what your dog's going to look like and how it's going to perform a lot of people in the griff world complain about the western dogs because they're too big you know, they're a little longer, leaner. They look more like a German wire here. Well, hey, we're in the United States. This is the way we hunt. We're not in France anymore where you're just, right. you know. And so, 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 so some people are going to adapt their dogs to it. As long as they stay within breed standard, you know, sure. we're good to go. And, and that makes perfect sense because why wouldn't you want, I mean, if you are a fan of a specific breed and you, like you said, you keep it in breed standards, it doesn't say you can't breed it to, the edge of that standard, which is the best place for where you are. Yeah. For, for what you're looking for. So, you know, and like I say, I tell people, if you want a puppy or you want to go get a dog, go visit the people that got the dog, the breeder. Just sure. don't buy the first dog you see, because I'll tell you right now, if you got, you know, if, if the female dog that you go visit with the puppies is a total idiot, well, I'm not taking that puppy because that's passed on those traits to that puppy. And um, it's just, you know, if you know the people, you hunt with the people, you see the dogs, trust them. And you're going to get the right dog. Sure. Sure. That make that makes perfect sense. And and then if you pick out a breeder that's looking for, like, just sit down and talk. Like, say you, say I was talking to you as a breeder and we were getting serious and I was looking for a puppy and I'm talking to you and you're talking about, well, I bred my dogs for this gate for this reason. I look for this, this, and this. I mean, if you have a breeder that's specifically doing traits like that, that also shows a lot compared to a breeder that's just kind of putting two dogs together to make what they think might be a good dog. Yeah. A lot of times, I mean, even the other breeds and the Griffins, especially most of the breeders will just require you get an NA to breed your dog. And then, you know, and well, that's, that doesn't indicate a, a, a dog, you know, any dog should be able to pass it. So if you're looking for a superior bred dog, you want to go to dogs that got utility titles or, in VHDF AHA titles. And uh, in, if you were to use AKC, you want to see master dogs, you know, or senior dogs. Sure. Just, you know, especially for, especially if you want field dogs. That makes sense. I mean, I never ran the junior test, but I, I actually, I, I was at quite a few. And 
that's if that's real similar to the natural ability test you're right mm -hmm. i mean it doesn't necessarily say a lot like it's not the hardest test some dogs it might be a very hard test to pass but really it shouldn't be you know and, and, and people laugh at me when i tell them on na dogs i like to i like to see a dog who gets a 110 and that means he had a little bit of a cooperation issue in that test which means you know, he was still thinking that I could handle this. And I, that, those dogs are normally the dogs that, uh, you know, give you that little extra. Sure. And uh, people laugh at me when I say, say that or they hear it from people. But, you know, sometimes the dogs that's on the end of, edge of cooperation, it's on that little ragged edge where I'm not quite going to be your best friend. I'm thinking for myself a little bit. Maybe the dog that's going to be the best dog for you if you want to have a field dog. And that makes sense. And and I've talked about that before. There is a slight difference between a hunting dog and a field dog in, in some ways. I mean, and to have something that's a little more like, and that kind of rolls to what you're saying with like the West method of letting the, the birds and the dog kind of try to figure it out for themselves too. Yeah. And like I said, once the dogs figure that out, um, they're confident in what they're doing. They're not always looking at you to tell them what to do. Um, my friend, Julie Griswold there, she had a, a, a Kurzhar Artie that, uh, was just a monster trying to get the stop, you know, to steady. And uh, we did the pinch collar, turned him over, sat there, quit yelling whoa at him and, you know, the whole nine yards and just made him stand there and think about it. We zinged a few pigeons over the top of the head. And uh, he just all of a sudden the light bulb turned on and it was there. But I don't know if you'd ever just force that dog into being, you know, steady the wing shot and fall. Sure. So just letting the dog figure it out, not yelling and screaming at him, letting him think, you know, okay, so if I'm cooperative, I'm going to get the bird. If I'm not cooperative, I'm not going to get a retrieve. Right. And once they figure that out, you know, nine tenths of the battle's over. And that's one thing with labs and what I've noticed even with versatile dogs, that retrieve is... I see my dogs chasing something outside or upstairs. I can hear. Um, I'm, glad that not, not, I'm glad it's not only my dogs. <laughs> well, it's that, my dogs I should say <laughs> that retrieve is a reward. Like that retrieve is a reward. I'm, I'm a firm believer in that. So once they figure out, like if I stay or I'm for like a duck dog, stay and be steady or whoa, steady to the flush to the, to the shot, like that retrieve is a reward. And once, like you said, that light bulb goes on, things change. Yeah. And a lot of the field dog people, obviously they don't, they don't use the retrieve because they're not shooting the birds are standing. So a lot of those dogs have lost that desire for that retrieve, but the sure. little dogs have not lost that. I mean, that's the cherry in the cake. And when you, you know, once the dog figures out to comply that they're going to get their feathers in their mouth, but they got to comply with you to do it, it. It, it makes everything so much easier. And uh, I hold off. A lot of people, you know, um, will start doing force fetch work or get the retrieving work. I keep the natural retrieve on my dogs till about 12 months, 13, 14 months, and then we'll start doing the obedience work. But I, I can't think of one puppy or dog that I've kept that didn't want to retrieve. Sure. Yeah, I, you know, just naturally want to do that. And um, the easiest way to find that out, you know, is on the water because you throw, you know, a duck or something out in the water and, and that excites the puppies up and they bring it back. Well, you know, you got a natural retrieving dog. Sure. Sure. That makes, that makes sense. Um, when you're trained, I know this isn't really like navda topics or anything like that, but I'm curious because you breed dogs and that, how early are you introducing them to birds? Like right six after weeks, like six weeks. All right. I have a Higgins release 
launcher, which is a real quiet, it's just a launcher that opens up. It doesn't pop the bird in the air. I put that Higgins release in the, in the, with the dogs and the puppies in the pen six weeks. They all get to run around, sniff, smell, take a look. You open it up, the pigeon flies away. And they're all like standing around going, oh, holy cow, what was that? How did that, you know? And uh, so that, that's, you know, and that, so that drive to chase and that drive is already there at six or seven weeks for the people when they get the dog. Sure. And it's sure. just, and, it, and when the light bulb goes on in a puppy, you know, at a young age or whatever, it's just, you know, it makes me proud. It's just, it's neat to see. And uh, like I say, six weeks, my dog, the puppies are already chasing pigeons or seeing pigeons out of the launchers in the yard. All right. And I don't do, you know, everybody wants to put the wing on a string and start sight pointing. Um, that's, it's good for a time or two. You got a dog doesn't, I don't do that at all. I mean, I, sure. everything's hid. It's all scent work, not eye work with the dogs from then on. And, uh, it just makes the dogs think and, and makes them a lot better. You, know, you don't want them depending on their eyes too much. So the more nose work you do with a young puppy, the better off you are. I agree. I a hundred percent with that. I think that really plays even more like into being grouse hunters too. Like when we talked about, like you can't put pressure on those birds and that. And I feel mm -hmm. like if you have a dog that relies on its eyes, I think that's, it's not going to work out as well for you if you want to go chase grouse. Yep. So a friend of mine, Tina Honnick Iceberg has got a, one of my Griffin males. And uh, I mean, it, it's a great dog. I mean, so we started, she started doing Europeans with the dog, you know, with the tower hunts. Sure. So the dog got into the habit of where he had to see everything because a dead bird I pick up, a live bird I don't, I point. So that was starting to cause a little issues with her. And so you kind of got to back it up and teach the dog. So there's, there's all kinds of things that you can do. Like, to put a little question mark on what your dog's doing and it was just to just to watch the dog figure out okay so i'm on his tower hunts i'm doing a lot of time a dead bird i can go get so i'm gonna go and take a look at everything and make sure if it's dead or alive so there you got a dog that starts to creep gets in and looks at everything tight and there's a little problem there right and so when tina did this we did this dog on the gibbons weth mess that she didn't want to overlay an e-collar on the okay. So we're going to go back and overlay the e-collar and give her a way to control the dog and work back on it and everything will be fine. Sure. But that just shows you how smart they are oh, and how exactly. quick they can adapt. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, there's, that's a smart dog. It's a smart breed, you know, and uh, they don't do well if you're just a harker on them and, and all kinds of pressure. Cause it's not that they're soft. It's that they're smarter than what you think. Exactly. And it's hard to describe that to people too. Cause they're like, well, if they're smart, you can, they're just hard headed. I'm like, no, they're not hard headed. They're smart. It's different. It's not, they're not soft. I feel like you, and I don't want to say you have to train them like a soft dog, but you can't train them like the, you can't be firm either. I, I, I keep, like I said, the puppies that I keep out for myself are all the dogs that are on the edge of, uh, you know, they're, they're hardcore dogs. Sure. You know, they're dry. So you can get a little bit with more obedience work than that. Um, then, um, uh, and then the other dog. So I, when I, my puppies, I do a puppy evaluation on all of them. So in this evaluation, they'll get a score. So I can kind of figure out which dogs are teetering on the edge of being fours and fives, which are going to be dogs that are high drive. And then you got dogs that are two and threes. And those are the dogs that I send out to just my hunters or casual people. And then the people that want to have the, you know, take a dog to a, you know, master hunter or whatever, those other dogs are the ones that I bleed into. Sure. Sure. And that makes sense. 
And the training approach is going to vary slightly too, based on that drive. And that's with any breed though. I mean, a dog with a high drive and a high energy, because you can give them that reward is far more trainable than a dog that doesn't have as much drive in my opinion. Yeah. Well, I mean, and, and it's, and I don't want to say it's, it's, you know, every dog will do what you want to hunt, but there's just going to be that, you know, there's, there's the, there's the dog that can, you know, do the quarter mile in three seconds. And there's a dog that's going to do it in six. So right. the dog that does it in three seconds is always going to win and knows that, you know, and, and, and those other dogs are fine dogs. They're great dogs, but they're not going to be on the up, you know, and that's with every breed. So you just, you, you just send the puppies to those, those homes that just want a good foot hunting dog. And then the other, uh, the other puppies go to the other people. Makes perfect sense. And I, I mean, also maybe that's also reflecting on trainers too, because you're right. Any dog, can, like, any dog that has some drive can be a hunting dog, but if you take a trainer with a high a trainer with a high quality skill set and give them a high quality dog, it's a different outcome. Oh, you, yeah, 100%. And uh and you're seeing that now with the Griffins. I mean, you're seeing Griffins now that are competing in Nastra, which you never did, which is and um I you know, some walking field trials and some uh, you know, horse but you're seeing some dogs and that's just from the, you know, people are picking out and they're, they're, they're making dogs now that can compete for the American way and not necessarily, you know, the slow working or walking gentleman's dog. And you know, what's funny too, is this, the, the Griffin never started off as being that, that, that moniker of being a slow walking gentleman's dog. EJ Corthals was a competitive man and he ran him in field trials against pointers and setters and everything else in the 1800s and 1900s. And all the stories about them dogs back then were fast moving dogs that cover ground and 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 so how they, they the, the moniker got to where they're weaved into being a slow working gentleman's dog that never got 50 yards is is, is not true that the, the dogs weren't designed you know weren't originally bred that way interesting i haven't looked that much into the history i should i'm just not a huge history buff i never really have been but you're right i mean they definitely have that gentleman's dog at like oh you're you're getting older now oh get a grip they, they don't run far they're not hard charging like but there are ones out there that are and i can talk from talking to you years obviously seem like a hard charging dog so it's interesting to hear that originally way back when they were that hard charging dog yeah i mean you got a a, a man in the 1800s who was in germany starting a rough coated breed against a bunch of germans you know with all the stuff that was going on in the competition you think he's not going to have a dog that's going to compete against everybody else right right you know it, it's just not that's just not the way it was back then you know, it's like if somebody would come in and your dog got smoked by somebody else. Well, I'm not a happy person. And right. You or whatever. And, and that's the origin of the breed. And, cool. uh, and uh, you know, and when, when, world, you know, when the World War One, when the breed split up, you know, when the Germans took the, the, the wire hairs and the Drothars and it split up. And then the, the most of the development of the breed went to France and the Netherlands and stuff. You know, that's where that... Uh, you know, their, their hunting situation was different, not as much fur as the Germans were doing, you know, you know, and that's, it just was a different, so that, that they might, you know, the, they, they, what I want to say, they, uh, um, warped into the being that, you know, that the slower working gentleman's dog that everybody talks about. Sure. And that's the selective breeding going back to selective breeding. If you want to call it that they were looking for something specific for their hunting area and started to tailor their their dogs to that, which somehow started to become the breed standard at, at that point. Yeah. I mean, the breed standard was already set. So it's, you know, it's changed a little bit here and there, but sure. 
you know, we when you look back at the origin of the dogs, you know, that's what they originally were, were bred for, and that's that's still there in them. It doesn't take too much to get it back out. That's you know, with the lines, you know, the way the, you know, the breeding lines and stuff like that. It's you know, two or three. I can change a Griffin's coat in three generations. Wow, so I didn't know you could do it that quick. That's that's I've done it. I mean, just by picking the dogs up. And so, uh, I mean, so it doesn't take that long to get the traits that you want or back to the original traits or or to go to a 90-pound dog that, you know, looks like a, a woolly mammoth. <laughs> like you see some of them there nowadays, you know, that they're not even close to being within breed standard. I ran into one in camping. Just you bring that up. I ran into one camping a couple of weeks back and it was all of 80 pounds with extremely long hair. And I'm like, I'm like I looked at it and I'm like, is that even a griff? Like, is it some sort of doodle on? Like, what is this thing? I back 15, 16 years ago, I started putting on a few uh, you know, get-togethers for people. And we'd have sometimes 70, 80, 90 dogs there. So I wanted to see what was the what, you know, what was there in the breed and what was was popular and what you were seeing. And uh, that helped me pick the course I wanted to take with a lot of my dogs. Sure. And uh, one of the dogs that came was Fred, and uh, he was from the East Coast, and he was just a big, lovable, gun-shy dog. But he was every bit of 90 pounds. And I still tease the owner. I always say, I said, so how's that old muskox Fred doing? <laughs> That's awesome. And uh, so he wanted to take him out in the field that day, and uh, he, he said, Fred's kind of a little bit gun-shy. He goes, I, you know, but I'm going to take him out and. I was in the clubhouse and Fred joined me on the couch for the next half hour till they ran back in to figure it out. So Fred got a few doggy treats and a little belly rubbing and got introduced to the Bear Creek uh, clubhouse. So Fred was more than just a little gun shy then. Fred was a lot gun shy. <laughs> and then all my females were like 45, 50 pounds. And Fred wants to go over and get a little fresh with them. And the major whooping went on and, you know, so my dogs were considered the little chihuahuas of the Griff world. Because <laughs> your dogs are bred for that high drive, so they didn't put up with old Mister Mustox. Well, plus there's five of them together as a as a pack, and you sure. start bothering with one in the pack, and everybody's it's you know it's a group affair then. <laughs> Sounds like a good day at the clubhouse. Yeah, good day fun. for story making. It was a good deal, you know, and and it was nice to see, honestly, for me to see the different types of dogs were out there. And, and then, uh, you know, there were some, there were some really nice dogs. There was three or four dogs that were just outstanding dogs and they had the potential. And, sure. uh, you know, I, I, you know, I watched those dogs and used those dogs and various things. And, you know, that's helped me get to uh, move my dogs along or, you know, from where they were at to, to where they're now. Very nice. Very nice. That's a lot of experience right there. Like to be able to, bring all those dogs together and look at them, look, look at the different breed like that. That's a lot of experience that you can gain right there. Like that's something you can't, that's not something you can just read a book on and see. No. And, 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 and you know, if just, just to be able to judge and see that, you know, um, and our, and the, and the dogs, the quality of dogs is, is in our breed has increased tremendously over the last 15 years. I mean, it's no comparison. I mean, at the nav the days and stuff like that, it's just nice to see dogs coming from out west that you drop them on the ground and there ain't a short hair in the world that's going to beat that dog. Sure. And that's good to hear, too, because you get worried as a breed. And I feel like I feel like griffs are getting more popular. I feel like a lot of those 
they're not a designer breed. They're a, they're a, they're a working dog. They're a hunting breed, but they have that, they have a beard and this. So I feel like I'm worried that with breeding, like they might, like it might get washed out. So it's good to hear that it's still being focused on. I mean, I know a lot of people aren't going to like to hear this, but I consider the breed is already split. Sure. You know, between the confirmation show breed dogs and to the purely field bred dogs. And you'll see the confirmation people come back, you know, and pick up a, you know, a, a field dog and bring it back in their lines. And, uh, but you know, the, the, the confirmation people don't think so. They're saying, well, you know, these are dual purpose dogs. They do, they do show and everything else, but in all honesty, the, you know, the, the field dog side of it is, you know, those people use field dogs, they breed to field dogs and the show dog people and the confirmation people are, are using the dogs they're familiar with. And, sure. uh, you know, and they're breeding for a specific coat that they feel like their judges are going to like, whereas you're breeding for not necessarily for judges, but I'm just going to say that you're breeding for a specific drive for field trials and master titles and things yeah. like that. And you're not breeding towards the same judging standards anymore, really. Yeah. And I, like I said, I, and I, I say that all the time, as long as the dogs stay within breed standard, which is an established breed standard, that's what you're looking for. Sure. And when you get outside that breed standard, you know, for confirmation dogs, well, there that becomes an issue. And then if you get field dogs that are outside that confirmation issue where they become, you know, too elongated, too much like a pointer, and, and well, that's just as wrong. So, and, uh, you know, hopefully it'll work out. I think there'll always be quality field dogs and, you know, with Griffins for, you know, forever. I mean, I honestly think that we probably produce more puppies now in the United States than France does, which is unbelievable, which is unbelievable compared to 15 years ago. Interesting. How much different is the, on like, so same dog standard, obviously breeding to the standard, but is there a big difference now that you see from a dog from France to like an American bred one? Um, I, I've got a, one of my, my new puppies in, she's out of my, uh, she's, uh, out of one of my Ella's, uh, grandchildren and she's bred, you know, back to French dogs coming out. So small athletic dog she's got a nice harsh coat but she's got a little more coat than my dogs so the field dogs are there they're still there they'll always be there you know you just got to pick the dogs sure and the show dogs that i'm seeing are have a tends to be big dog bigger dogs and uh you know my little aurora dog is going to be a 21 inch dog at the shoulder and she'll never get put up in the show show dogs because you know she doesn't look doesn't have that look that they're looking for. Sure. But it's good. She's going to be an excellent dog. I mean, it's, you know, she's got VC dogs in her background and, uh, but it's, it's important to bring new genetics in and make sure you get mixed up in the dog. So there's, there's, you know, people in Quebec have done a wonderful job of bringing the new genetics, you know, out of France into their All dog. Right. And, uh, and it's, it's, it, you know, and I'm trying to, I'm bringing some West coast dogs and genetics into my dogs too now, because they're, getting confined up to a lot of Eastern dogs and French dogs. And, you know, it's important to follow that and do it. And then I've, uh, Embark is doing, uh, you know, genetic testing on them. So now I get an accurate coefficient inbreeding on my dogs now. And that'll tell me when I'm getting too tight a lot on my lines. And then if I need to, you know, bring in some outside blood. So technology is helping us out with this too. Sure. It makes sense. 
it's it's cool to hear like on like the really the thought process of the breeding and i've talked to other like trainers before that have kennels and do some breeding but i i, I didn't think the episode would go this way and i love it like it's really like giving me an insight on like the focus on breeding and really we've been very griff's griff focused here which is pretty obvious to be both are griff owners but you really could have the same conversation we had if you wanted a, a Brittany or a short hair or even a lab, you could have this type of conversation with the breeder that we just talked about and ask these questions like, what are you breeding to? Like ask these specific things. Well, why are you breeding this way? Why did you bring this bloodline in? Things like that to really help you narrow down not only what the qualities you want in your dog, but to make sure you're working with a breeder that's focused on making the breed better. Yeah. 90% of the people who ask for a puppy, the first, they just want a puppy. They don't, you know, or they, and so it's just that 10% that are interested in that and look for it. And, uh, you know, and that, I, I mean, I've been, you know, grew up in a farm genetics and stuff like that's always intrigued me. So it's just been something that I've just enjoyed doing and looking at. Sure. And, and going back. So, you know, it, and you see people now that are just buying a, a griff from here or a dog from there and they get two of them and they breed them because it's an easy bankroll. Well, that's not the person you want to get a dog from. Right. You know? And, and what you find, what, what's interesting about that is that uh, I see a lot of people that that's their first dog and then they figure it out and then they start thinking and going, you know, looking for the, the next step up in the dogs. And, and I've never heard this said. It's from, as you can tell, the cat kayak was started with paddle and fin. I'm the only hunting episode. Um, but we always joke around in the kayak stuff, like on the tournament side, buy your second kayak first. Like, don't like think about what you want. Buy your second kayak first. I've never heard that for dog breeding before, but it really works to that exact same thing. Like, don't just buy a pup. Like, talk to your breeder, figure out what you want in your dog. And buy your second dog first. I'm gonna. I like that. I'm gonna start using that line. I'm gonna steal it without a Do doubt. It. Do it. I've never <laughs> thought. You may want to run a patent on it because it may be used here quickly. <laughs> but no, that's funny though. Like, because the saying does apply, and we're talking about something completely different here too. So it even holds more value because this dog's gonna be in your life for ten to fifteen years. It's not like a kayak where if you don't like it. You really don't have any emotional value to it and you can just trade it off like a dog is a commitment for years yeah it's a commitment for your lifetime i mean it's 15 16 years for some of these dogs and everybody asked me about my breeding females they go well do you just ship them off to somebody or you know what do you do with them i says i like to start breeding at two and i want to be done between six and seven and then these are my field dogs my i mean they're always my home you know all my dogs are in the house I sure. my family dogs. So, uh, you know, and it's every year it's like batter up every four years. There's a new, new group of puppies coming in and it's batter up and the old dogs teach them and they hunt together. And, you know, they're all buried in the backyard of my family's, you know, that's had the property since the sixties. So. And it never gets, I'm, I, it hasn't for me, I'm sure it probably hasn't gotten easier for you when you have to make those transitions. Oh no! I mean, it's just it just breaks me. I mean, I I've had a, a couple rescues that I brought in that, I mean, they were just too. I mean, you couldn't fix them, and if I had to put them down, and I felt just as I felt worse about putting those dogs because I failed, and right. I don't like to fail. And, and it's not, and 
and it's not your fault. I mean, it isn't your fault because you took that dog in and it was already had those behavioral, like it was already shaped. You were trying to reshape it, but it it's sad that someone failed that dog and didn't give that dog what it needed to succeed. Like that's just, it's, it's almost a tragedy if you think about it. Well, I mean, and I, and I, and I feel, I mean, I feel like I failed. Right. I mean, I feel just as bad about, you know, putting that dog down as, as, you know, hurts me just as bad as a dog that was lived 15 years with me because, sure. you know, I brought that dog in and I'm supposed to be able to fix it. I'm supposed to be able to make it. So, and I didn't do that job and it just tears me up at times, you know, you get over it, but. It's still there. I, I know. I mean, still there. Yeah. you get over it, but it's still there. I get it. Like, yeah. Time heals all wounds, but it, it doesn't, there's still a scar, which is easy to open back up. <laughs> And, you know, it's not like I'm not going to quit trying because it, it just, you know, there's so many, you know, you get a call and, hey, this dog's going to get put down tomorrow. And I was thinking that you could probably help it out. Well, you're in a truck, you're driving and you're picking it up. Right. Right. And then you're seeing if you can't make it into something special like Kenneth's done with three dogs now. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, I, I, I look at like 15 or 16 dogs that were all scheduled to be put down and. I see them with their new homes and they're happy and they're doing stuff. And that makes me feel just as, you know, on the good side, as bad as how I felt when I had to put a dog down. So. Sure. It's a roller coaster. Owning dogs is a roller coaster. I mean, you put so much into them and they give so much, give you everything they have. It's, it's never easy when one has, when you have to say that those goodbyes at the end of the day. Yeah, exactly. So is there anything else you'd like to know about NAVDA training? Did I miss something by floating this? talk from one side to the other no i think we gave a good overview i don't think anybody should be scared of getting in there it sounds like the natural ability test is has kind of changed over time but it's still the same like it sounds like people are training far more but i mean really it comes down to reach out to that local club meet some people like you said which is a great suggestion pick a method and stick with it and find some trainers i would if it was me and I was joining a new club and I was going to pick the West method, I'd find some knowledgeable people there with the West method, make those friends, like make those connections there. So that way there you have someone to rely on and then yeah. go from there. And, and it's been in the membership of the NAB has changed. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's really nice to see the amount of women with their first dog who are coming in and saying, Hey, I want to go, I want to go bird hunting. My dog deserves to, to do what it was bred for. And, uh, you know, that's the biggest demographic that's coming in now to hunters is, is women. Sure. Yeah. You, know, you know, older women. And uh, I've seen a lot of studies from like pheasants forever. And they say that, that the, you lose the kids till they're 30 or 35 and then they come back to do it. Well, that's where we should be trying to pick up our people at, you know, right. as the women that get their first dog or the hunters. And then the people who are got their family established, they're not trying to get a business going, you know, and they want to come back and get a dog and, you know, enjoy it again. So. And that's one thing I've always like focused more on. I'm all for getting kids out and especially kids that don't have like, they're not necessarily like a family that really hunts or maybe they only deer hunt, but they want to try bird hunting. I'm all for getting kids out. But I also focus a lot on that after college crowd though, that want to like experience hunting, but have never did it. They didn't grow up in a hunting home, but now they want to maybe have wild food, hunt for their own food, something like that. And I feel like you get, if they reach out and they want to experience that after college, after maybe they've got their career started, even if it's not established, even just started, I feel like you get some really good retention there because now they're actively looking to start something new. 
Yeah. And, you know, we got limited funds to try to recruit new people. And right. um, that's, the, that's the demographics that you're talking about right there where you retrain the people and they come in and they stick with it. Um, we, Dave Jones, he, like I said, he just came up and did a Gibbons West seminar. And there was women there who had hunted in the Pheasants Forever program, women in the wings okay. and never had a dog. You know, they hunt over my dog or, or some of the other people. And uh, they've got a dog and they came and they wanted to learn. And, you know, it, it's just nice to see. Okay. And then like with the women in wing program, um, I pushed really hard to get women to be the guides and do the stuff, um, you know, with the dogs and stuff. And we kind of moved all the old greasy old guys out of the situation and brought in, you know, new, you know, handlers that got good dogs and stuff and taken over. And the women, that's who they want to talk to. They want to, they, they learn better from that. And you, you get a much higher retention, you know, doing it that way too. Makes sense. Makes sense. And I've always I've always said too, if you introduce someone and they and they get a bird dog, it's game over. Like you won. Like if we're talking retention and winning and losing, if you give them a good enough experience over a dog and they another year later they decide to get a bird dog and start training, we won. They're never leaving. Oh no, they're not. And it's just it's you know that's the demographics we need as hunters to get you know to keep our ranks going because all of our wildlife conservation comes off hunters' money. Right. Right. We got we got to keep that bankroll going, and it's amazing how much like the different organizations help with that. And I just had a good conversation with Rough Grouse Society talking habitat and how much influence they have on more than what I even realized when it came to habitat. And all that's funded by hunters, and you have their license fees, you have the taxes that are funded back into it from all your sporting good purchases. I mean, we keep the habitat rolling for sure. Yeah. And uh, believe it or not, the Wild Turkey Federation puts on in the state of Michigan sponsors a lot of, uh, you know, new hunter stuff. And they do it all to pheasant preserves and they put it because that's the easiest way for people to get in and see birds. And then they then those people that do that start off that way. They bring into doing turkey hunting. But sure. uh, the Wild Turkey Federation in Michigan is does all kinds. I mean, you can't ask for any, any you know, better people to do the work. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, is there anybody you want to thank? Anything you want to, any final thoughts to wrap it up? Well, I think it's, uh, thanks for putting up with me. Oh, it's been fun, man. It's been a great conversation. Yeah. And, um, I hope some everybody gets to learn something and, uh, by, you know, get a hunting griff is all I can say. Uh, I'm a big fan of the breed. I would, I would agree with that right there for sure. And, well, uh, hopefully I'll see you in North Dakota. How's that? Well, there we go. That'd be a good place. I've never been to North Dakota. Well, I'll be around Harvey the end of October and first of November. So, all right, all right. Well, I'll definitely stay in touch. No doubt about that. Um, do you want you want to let anybody know your Facebook? Do you have a Facebook page for your training or anything like that, or your yeah, channels um, or Instagram? Fuzzy Dog Enterprises on Facebook for the dogs, and then I'm a, one of the moderators for the Hunting Griff page. Um, George has done a wonderful job, you know, keeping that page going. And if you want to see hunting dogs or people included, that's the page to go to. Perfect. And, uh, I, I study with style. In the description. Study with style. Well, Jonesy and Mo and uh, Martha Greenlee got an excellent website there. And if you want to learn the shut your mouth and let the dog figure it out method, there's the go way to go. 
I read Mo's book and I was quite impressed. And that was my first entry into that training method. And it definitely opened my eyes coming from an older school mentality. I'm not even that old, but you read like the books of like the old mentality. It was eye-opening. It really was. So I, I encourage everybody to at least look at that method because I think, I think it is really going to change. And I'm sure it's not a new method or newer, but I think it's going to change how a lot of people do training. Yep. There's, there's, I mean, it's the new people that are using it. It's tremendous. I mean, you know, the field trial champions are coming out of that method. They have been for a long time and it's opening people's eyes up and it works great for to start off with young dogs. Perfect. Well, I highly appreciate you coming on Mike. Uh, I will link the descriptions to the fuzzy dogs and the hunting and uh, hunting grip page along with study with style in the description. So people can easily find it. To my listeners, thanks again for joining me. And until next time, keep chasing that experience. Thanks for tuning in to another killer episode here on Paddle and Finn. Be sure to drop a five-star rating, a thumbs up, or smash that subscribe button on any platform you're listening in on. Be sure to check us out on Waypoint TV, waypointtv.com. Make sure you sign up for the Fantasy Kayak Fishing League at paddleandfin.com forward slash fantasy. You could support this show through Patreon, patreon.com forward slash paddleandfin. Don't forget to check out the website paddleandfin.com. Catch us on YouTube. If you got a question, comment, or want to see a future guest on the show, be sure to email us at paddleandfin at gmail.com. Shout out to our show supporters, Yak Gadget. You can check out all the fine kayak accessories at yakgadget.com. Pelican Professional. For all your cases, coolers, and lighting needs, go to pelican.com. Rocktown Adventures. Your Midwest premier paddle sports destination. Go to rocktownadventures.com. Eastport Marina. The beautiful destination on Dale Hollow Lake. If you're looking for lodging, kayaks, kayak accessories, or anything fishing related on the beautiful Dale Hollow Lake, go to eastport.info. And Jigmasters Jigs. When in doubt, get the jig out. Go to jigmasters.com and fill your tackle boxes today.